0: Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Steve. shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100 right. Well, Steve joins us now. Erin Molan is one of the most admired women in the Australian media, but her success has at times come at a cost from a public that loves to tear down a tall poppy. On the Record, this episode explores what drives Erin as she pays an emotional tribute to her military father and hero, Jim.
1: Steve, great to catch up with you as well, and thank you so much for having me.
0: You're one of the most recognised faces in the Australian media. How do you deal with that level of public recognition? Is it hard?
1: Oh, absolutely. On occasions, it is. And look, it used to be much earlier in my career, I think, the attention and given the roles that I was were very lucky to have been given and definitely earned, a lot of hard work went into it, but early on. Particularly in the footy show and that kind of thing, when I was the first woman to host, first woman to be a full time panelist, first woman on the continuous call team. There were a lot of firsts, so it did garner a lot of different attention, a lot positive, which was wonderful, and a lot negative, which, you know, was tough to deal with early on because I just wasn't used to it. You know, I'd never experienced that kind of negative attention in in my entire career, let alone in my entire life. So, absolutely challenging. But now, you know, I'm a, I feel like I'm a veteran. I've been at Channel 9 for 10 years and before that, you know, seven or eight years working in, in regional media and other television stations around the country and radio stations around the country. So I feel very well-versed now to deal with it. And I think as you get older, the opinions of other people hurt you less and less. And the way I kind of look at it now, if you pay me, so if you're my boss or if I love you, so if, you know, you're my family or someone that means something to me, then I care about what you think. Otherwise, you know, everyone else. It's kind of just outside noise, which is how I deal with it these days. But it's been a true privilege to do what I do and to be given so many great opportunities and to, to try and make the most of all of them. So it's been wonderful.
0: It's a great attitude to have. I mean, do you find, you know, television's an incredible thing. Once you go on television, you can't really go anywhere in public without someone recognising. You find most people pretty friendly?
1: Oh, absolutely. And this is the point I often make when it comes to talking about things like trolling on social media and, and the online space. I, I think once in, well, 10 years, definitely at Channel 9, I've had someone maybe, you know, say something to my face that wasn't particularly nice and that was, I think maybe at 2 a.m. at a pub about eight years ago that you know he'd had a few schooners. But apart from that, I, I kid you not, every single person I've ever encountered has been absolutely lovely and will come up and say they love my work or they love what I do or you know their mother loves me or their daughter looks up to me. Just wonderful things, male, female, old, young, the whole shebang. It's incredible. So in real life, I find you know 99.9% of people are absolutely lovely and. It's a real honour that people want to come up and say hello to you, and you know. But I look so different, though. I think from when I'm on air and hair and makeup done to when I'm not on air that that often I can go a little bit incognito, which is nice because I, when I'm not working, I don't do hair and makeup. I, I could not even, I would not know how to put on eyeshadow. I don't even know what it's bloody called—the stuff you put on your eyes. I don't do anything. I put on the sunscreen and that's it, and hair up in a saddle. So I do look very different from my on-air persona, which which works well <laughs> a lot of the time.
0: One of my other good friends in the media, who is female, Carrie Bickmore from the Project. One of the things that really does upset her, uh, and she she deals with it, but it's hard, is the paparazzi idea that they can hang around outside your house and take pictures. Have you had that problem?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah, definitely. She look, hates
0: it. I mean, she just yeah, she's got three young I, I, children like you.
1: Absolutely, and and look. If I, if I said that I didn't hate it I'd be lying I, I, I really feel uncomfortable with it and particularly since having my daughter I feel much much more uncomfortable with it I, I guess it is just part and parcel but you know I've been in situations where I've been chased I've been in cars driving with my daughter in the car and you might have two on motorbikes and one in a car and you know it makes you feel really really unsafe and uncomfortable and, yeah, I dislike it intensely. I, I like to protect my daughter from from that kind of exposure. And look, I, I might share the back of her head on social media and do a few different things, but we're actually very private when it comes to her. So, so that side of things is definitely a downside. And look, I, I know that we're all in the media space and, and I'm sure my own network and, and publications have published paparazzi pictures of other people. So you know, I really, I'm probably in no, no space to come out and comment that strongly, but, but I dislike it, but I know it's part and parcel of what I do. I, I dislike it more intensely when it involves my daughter and, you know, I've been, we, we get tapped fairly regularly, unfortunately, and, you know, things like dropping her off at preschool and different photos that might identify where we live or where she goes to preschool are probably the ones that upset me the most or, You know, walking along with my partner and not looking lovingly into each other's eyes—that therefore means we're (laughs) fighting and hate each other. So, whereas we're just actually walking. (laughs) You know, there are people with children with cancer. So, look, I'm not—I know how blessed and lucky I am, but it's definitely a side of public life that I detest. Yeah,
0: I've only ever had one really bad experience. I was sitting in a a pub late one night, and some bloke walked up out of nowhere. I didn't even see him coming. He came from the back left shoulder. And tipped a whole beer over my head and then muttered something about Tony (laughs) Abbott. I turned around and said, mate, you've just wasted your beer.
1: (laughs) You know what? That would actually be a great story to tell. You know, I'd be quite open to having that happen to me because I'd love to be able to say that occurred. <laughs> probably not ideal for you at the time, but, oh, Lord, what a waste of a beer, huh? Oh, no. I don't now, think anyone would hopefully hate me enough to want to waste alcohol. Uh, that would be really ridiculous.
0: Now, of course, with you, Erin, it's not just your face that's recognised in Australia. You've got a very prominent surname, Molan, um, courtesy of your dad, Major General Jim Molan. Uh As a child, did you actually grow up realising dad was a big deal?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a great question. I think I always thought my dad was the Biggest deal in the entire world, I think, prior to him having any kind of public profile, I think you know a lot of a lot of you. I'm sure your daughters both felt exactly the same about you from a young age.
0: Not sure, that. I just that. always
1: <laughs> oh, don't worry. There are moments like when dad <laughs> emptied my entire bedroom because I wouldn't clean it and dumped it in the inaugural army barracks bin that I didn't he look did. up to him quite so fondly, <laughs> mate. Honestly, if dad says he's going to do something, he will always follow through, which mm. is great for a politician, but not so great when you're 16 and won't clean your room and he says. If you don't clean your room before school, I will empty your entire bedroom into the bin at the inaugural barracks. I'm like, yeah, whatever, dad, get home. Whole room empty. He actually went to that amount of effort. And then he drove me though to help get it out of the bin, which what was lovely. Great,
0: what a great in man. In front
1: of all the soldiers, honestly, so noble. But, <laughs> but in all honesty, you know, I, I don't think, and I've got to be careful because my partner, Sean, is a, a policeman is in the next room. But, it, you know, I don't think I will ever look at and respect or think more highly of another man in my entire life than my father just the, the way that he has conducted himself, the things that he's done for this country, the way he's served this country. And as I get older, I understand more and more about the sacrifices that he's made and you know, putting his life on the line. He's never been the kind of general or, or officer in the army that kind of stood at the back and, and sent his soldiers <laughs> ahead. He's he, you know the kind of person that will never ask anyone to do anything, that he won't do himself. He's always led from the front. They used to call him Drugs and I think, in one of his roles. Not because he took drugs, but because I think the pack march that they used to do was like a, a 50 kilometre, 24 hour pack march or something like that for the young recruits. And dad all of a sudden came in, doubled it, but then did it with them. And he was the first boss, I think, to do it with them. And they all said, Oh, it must be on drugs, you know, to make us do this. It's ridiculous. But he's, he's just an incredibly hard worker. He loves this country more than anything. And he, he's just done so many incredible things. And then his, you know, foray into politics, God. He thought the military was tough and going to places like Iraq was tough. But, you know, wait till you try politics. And I just look at the way he's conducting himself there and, and what he's trying to do for this country is just incredible. You know, the service that he, he gave in the military would have been more than than so many other people could have ever expected to give. But then to want to continue to give is just amazing. So I'm immensely proud of him and, and all that he stands for. And he is, without doubt, morally, one of the most morally conscious people in the world he is the most incredible values and ethics that he's exercised throughout his entire career and every job he's done, and I couldn't be more proud. And, of course, only better by my mother, who has supported him through everything and is probably the most impressive of all of our family.
0: Great parents. Does Sean have to tell you to tidy your room?
1: Look, (laughs) it's quite funny now because I'm just sitting. We're away at the Blue Mountains, and I'm sitting here, and there's crap all over the bedside table and Uh. on the floor, and he literally – about an hour ago, walked in and said, "For the love of God, can you just pick up your shit?" <laughs> so <laughs> there
0: yes, you go. he Nothing's still has changed. to tell
1: me it's the one thing we fight about constantly. I look, I I can't be good at everything,
0: Steve. Oh, I have correct. some
1: skills. Other things, I am just a crap housewife times a million, and it's just it's not my forte.
0: Play to your strengths, Erin. Play to your strengths. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> dad was um,
0: Dad was posted to PNG, East Timor, uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, and uh, of course, he was in Iraq you went to 16 different schools a bit hard to make friends
1: absolutely and i think as you as you get older it, it got harder and harder so the kind of primary school years were, were much easier i think you know kids are, are much more kind of accommodating and welcoming when they they're that little bit younger there's not so much clicky you know groups in place but as i started to get older it it definitely became more challenging i, I remember hiding in toilets and bathrooms at at lunchtime because I didn't have anyone to hang around with when I was, you know, 13, 14. And, you know, it it definitely was challenging. But I look back now and I I look at, you know, even just the resilience on that level as a, you know, when you're that age, when you're a teenager and when you're in high school, that is the biggest thing in the world. And, and, you know, things that happen there are just, it's all consuming when you're that age. You don't realize that there's other things outside of that. So I look at the resilience that, I built having to always go into new situations and always having to to kind of back up when things hadn't gone well, or if I I've started a new school and people weren't that nice to me, and I just I, I'm so grateful because it served me so well in my current role. And I look at my ability now to walk into a room just like you do a million times over, where there might be a thousand people, and you get up on stage and you're emceeing, or I'm doing live television or live radio. And so many of the skills that I developed as a youngster going into new environments and having to meet new people, it just served me so well later in life. So it, it was a great upbringing. You know, I, I loved living in Indonesia and in Jakarta. That was probably, you know, one of, the, one of the best experiences of my life. And to to be, I think, seven and eight in the first posting where dad was the army attaché and then to be kind of 13, 14 when dad was the defence attaché at the Australian embassy there just gave me such an incredible appreciation of how lucky we are to live in Australia. You know we'd drive down the streets in Jakarta and you would just see the cruelest examples of poverty and such a divide between the wealthy and and you know and those who are poor. And it just opened my eyes up because you don't really get confronted with that in Australia in your day-to-day life when you're living in the suburbs, you know, unless you kind of go into the city, you don't really see the homeless, you don't see. That other people don't live the way that you live. So to see lepers on the side of the street, mums with babies who are begging, who've got nothing really, I guess, awoke in me this, this desire to, to help and to, you know, do whatever I could to, you know, to try and make life easier for other people. And mum always tells the story. I'd get pocket money and it wouldn't last one trip down the street because we'd stop at a light and my window would go down and I'd be giving to, to beggars and and to whoever was on the side of the street. So it, it, it kind of, brought that side out of me which you know I, I still have today and I'm really grateful for because I, I feel really passionate about doing a lot of charity work and helping a lot of people. We we're also there in 98 with Sahado cell and I think that was the big moment when I decided I wanted to be a journalist and wanted to cover news because you know we'd go to school, we'd drive through the Trisacti University shootings and I'd see all these things happening, people on the streets, protesters you know for Megawati, Sakana Putri and, and the whole shebang and then it wasn't reflected on the news the way it was happening. And I, I kept asking mum and dad, why, why isn't that shooting on the news or why are they saying this, why are they saying that? And it was because it wasn't a free press and Suharto ruled for 30 years and it was incredibly corrupt and his children owned every major piece of infrastructure in the country. And it just, I guess, you know, woke me up to the fact that, that we have a democracy we're so lucky and that freedom of press is so important and crucial. But that's kind of, you know, the Indonesian experience just shaped and moulded so much of who I am today and I speak the language as well which is you know the day-to-day Indonesian which I love and very passionate about I don't get to use it as much as I'd like in my current role of rugby league but yeah it was a great childhood and a great experience.
0: So you've kept that up did you go to an international school in Jakarta? We
1: did. We went to Jakarta International School, so I think the first. So that gives you a great
0: to, global aspect of because oh, you were mixing with with children of attachés uh, and ambassadors and uh, all of those sorts of people.
1: Totally, and people whose dad worked, you know, worked in BHP and oil companies and mining and in a million different areas and backgrounds. It was it was a phenomenal experience. Just and it was just so normal. It was just, you know, they were just. You look around the classroom and kids from every single different corner of the globe, and, and kids, you know, who. Some who spoke English, well, some who didn't, and it was just a, it was just such a wonderful experience, and the friendships that I still have today with people who are in all, all different parts of the globe is just wonderful. So we went to I think when Terra International School was the first school when we were when we were younger, the primary school, and that ended up shutting down, that was kind of an Australian British international school. And then the second time round was Jakarta International School, which I think is the second best and biggest international school in the world, I think, behind one in Singapore potentially. But even then that was very much based on US curriculum. So you'd have your kind of varsity teams and, you know, your middle school, your freshmen and, you know, that kind of thing. So it was great to just experience that American culture as well. It was really fascinating.
0: So you started on uh, television in Canberra. So from what you've said there... Did you more see yourself as becoming a a political correspondent, political journalist, someone who, like a foreign correspondent rather than sport, or did you always want to get into sport?
1: No, I I definitely loved the kind of the foreign affairs aspect for sure and I thought that's probably where I would end up and there was actually an opportunity uh, when I kind of just started at Channel 9 to go to Parliament House and cover politics and it was such a tough kind of decision for me not to pursue that. i just started on the footy show and I was getting some incredible opportunities in sport, but that was probably one of the toughest decisions of my life, not to go down that path. And, you know, who knows what the future holds, but I'd love to, to go down that path at some stage, definitely. Because, yeah, it, it's, when I'm not working or or kind of mothering or anything, I'm, I'm generally watching political shows and, and, you know, looking at foreign affairs, reading articles from all over the world. That's, that's a real passion of mine. But sport – you know, there were opportunities given to me and I kind of made the most of them and, and that determined my path. And I always loved sport. I loved playing sport when I was younger and I coached gymnastics for many, many years and, and always followed, you know, the Brumbies in Canberra and the Raiders growing up and that kind of thing. So it was certainly something that I loved, but I probably definitely thought I would end up more in the the kind of foreign affairs, political side of things rather than sport.
0: Incredible how the female influence on sport has uh, grown so quickly in the last, or not quickly, but in the last 10 years, it's become much more prominent. I mean, who would have thought 10 years ago, even as little a while as that, Erin, that you'd be sitting down watching uh, women play high-level NRL and AFL? I mean, it was just unthinkable. To old dinosaurs like me, it's still something that I go, well, would I go and watch it? But when you do watch it, the skill involved is incredible.
1: Oh, absolutely, and you're right. And I think I'm. A, in fact, on the first of November, marks exactly ten years since I started at Channel Nine. And I remember going into the Channel Nine Sports Department on my first day, and no there was women. one other woman there. Well, <laughs> Kelly had just started. The rest were blokes, and now I tell you what, the majority of them are women. It's incredible. You can't watch rugby league on TV now without a woman either hosting, commentating, or doing sideline. You, you, if if you if you don't want to watch women, you can't watch rugby league because they're everywhere. And and from a playing perspective. I think the first time I really, you know, women have excelled in sports for many, many years, in in athletics, in netball, in in a heap of different sports. But the football codes, apart from soccer, obviously, the the contact football codes have taken a little bit longer. But I remember watching the Rugby Sevens girls at the Olympics and they'd gone into a full-time training cycle for a couple of years prior. And when I saw that, I thought that is the potential when women are full time and when they're given money and they're given the opportunity to train, just like the men professionally train these football coaches, the skill level, the, even just the, the physicality, the bodies on them, you know, they were athletes, these girls. And I thought that's what we need to do with rugby league and AFL. You know, you, you need a product to be top tier or else people aren't going to want to watch it. So, So that's the first time I really thought, okay, rugby league and afl and and the other codes like that can really follow on but we need to make them full-time it's going to take a while absolutely but even just the difference in the nrlw the women's competition it is three years in from the first year even just looking at at how fit the girls were from the first year to this year the change has been incredible and it's still not full-time not even close to full-time but they're getting more and more opportunities so you give it another five years say and when they are full-time and the product will just be incredible and that that's what's got to be that's what's got to be the top of anything. It's got to be the product and the calibre of footy that they play. And then everyone will come and watch and everyone will want to watch. And it's just, it's incredible to watch the journey of it. And the AFL as well, we're, we're leaders in this field and that's just been phenomenal. Now we have household names of women who play AFL and women who play rugby league. It's brilliant.
0: I went on the uh, project on TV and criticised the quality of women's AFL and uh, boy, did I cop it from my eldest daughter. But I think I was still on the set and I got a text message. And she got very upset and very emotional. She sent me a message saying, Dad, you raised me to love AFL. She's a big Richmond fan. Yeah. And there you go on national TV putting down the game that I now play. She plays in Canberra. She's at ANU. Yeah. And she said, how dare you do that? And, boy, did that knock me sideways. So,
1: you know, I've had to actually have a
0: good hard look at myself over that.
1: It's really it's it's really interesting and it's really hard, because I had a similar experience on I think sports Sunday show when it was wide world of sports, probably six or seven years ago when I was asked about whether or not women should be paid the same as men, And this was, as I said, six or seven years ago. And I said, well, until they're generating the income, where does it come from? You know until they've they they've got the same amount of eyes on them, until they've got the same number of people buying jerseys, buying tickets to the game, sponsors jumping on board. Where does it come from, you know? And I got very heavily criticised for that as well. you know, I still, to a degree, believe that. But then I also, you know, I've evolved as well in my thinking of it. And, you know, they won't get those opportunities until they're paid similar money and until, you know, they're at the level that we need them to be. And, and to get to that level, they need investment in them and they need a lot of money invested in sponsors and that kind of thing. So it's it's, it's really hard, isn't it? And it's hard. But then I also look at the, you know, I would be critical of a men's rugby league match if it was sloppy or if the skills went up to scratch. You know, we we put blokes on the back page of the paper and say, you know, he's had an absolute barrier of the game or that pass was, you know, criminal. That You wouldn't do that in the under sixes. But I almost feel if you do that to a female player, then it's it's like, oh, well, you're anti-women in sport. It's like, well, I think women would want to actually, you know, if they want to have the same money and the same privilege and the same exposure as men, then we should also be able to be critical when it's warranted of different things. So it's really hard, isn't it, to, to go into this space now, particularly when it is so new and fresh. But I think as time goes by, we will be able to be critical of, of females and women playing the game, just like we are of their male counterparts. And that will just, it won't be a sexism issue. It'll just be you know, being critical of a performance or, or a different element of the game.
0: It's funny, you must cringe a bit given your dad's background when we throw around the word hero loosely about sports people.
1: <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? And I've always been very conscious of of not to, to elevate people to that status, definitely. And look, I not even people have done what my dad has done, but I think anybody who, who joins the military, anyone who joins the police force, anybody who's willing to put their line. On the life, anyone who joins the RFS or, or the equivalents across the country, anyone who, who signs up and knows that they could be asked to give their life in service of others is a hero in my eyes, even if they're never tested on that front. The willingness to do that makes you a hero. I think that there's wonderful people in sport and people are just incredible things, but I'm always very, very careful of using that term because I, I think there's, there's a lot of other people who deserve it
0: immensely. You're a fixture on the footy show and then you were the host. How was that crew to work with?
1: Oh, incredible. It was amazing. I, I remember when I first started and people would say to me, Oh, you know, what's been the most challenging part or you know, how have you how have you managed to make it work? And you know, I've always worked incredibly hard in terms of prepping my content and knowing everything that I could back to front in case it was asked of me live on air and always being a million times more prepared than my male colleagues because I wasn't a legend of the game. I haven't played football. If I don't know something, it's because I'm a woman and I'm shit shithouse. If they don't know something, it's just funny because, you know, they're funny. So I always, you know, heap a heap of work. But the biggest part of, of me succeeding on that show was having relationships with my colleagues and making sure that they would have my back, making sure that on air we had great banter and great chemistry because I knew that it would not work if they didn't like me, if they weren't fond of me, if they didn't care about me and if they didn't have my back. Because you can tell watching a show if people... Don't support each other and don't like each other. You can tell it's, it's very easy as someone sitting at home watching a TV show. If you know people are trying to catch each other out, or if someone says something, and you know you can absolutely disagree and have fierce and robust debate, but you can tell if people don't respect each other. And that was probably the thing that I, I put most effort into in those early days in that footage show was developing great friendships with Fatty, with Bo, with Big man and you know Big man and we holiday together. We he was the first person I told I was pregnant when you know we were over in Bali together with our partners and. You know, the friendships have just been the best part of all of it. So I've been really, really lucky. And just, yeah, have a ball on those shows, you know, the different skits and segments that we did and the bungee jumping and the caravan, the highway of happiness, where I was in a caravan with my Ryan for two weeks and driving around the country was just some of the greatest experiences of my life. And I don't think I'll probably, well, I think, you know, shows like that are, are dead anyway. And, you know, there's things that we would have done that, you could never do today, unfortunately, and in, in the current climate and what's considered appropriate and acceptable and all that kind of thing. But I look back and just feel so lucky that I was able to be part of it before that era of, of television shows unfortunately ended.
0: I understand your paranoia about doing your research and not making a mistake because for a, a female to make a, mis- a, a rugby league factual mistake would be twice as bad as somebody who was male. Uh, I yep. have I have a very embarrassing example. I I'm of obviously <laughs> of an AFL background, so you can ask me AFL questions going back to the 1960s and I can probably answer. I ended up going into Sydney radio from Melbourne radio with scant if not zero knowledge of rugby league. <laughs> Every time I spoke about rugby league, I felt like I was on a tightrope and that if I fell off, <laughs> I was going to be so embarrassed. I was one day interviewing uh, the great Freddie Fitler, yep. uh, and I, in my head, confused it with. I thought I was talking to Andrew Johns. This is live on air, <laughs> live on air, and I asked Brad about his injured shoulder, and there was a pause, and he said, "You think you're talking to Joey Johns, don't you?" And I, I stopped speaking. I started sweating. Uh-oh. My face went red. And about yep, two, two, years, oh, two years later, Brad rang me up and said, can I use that in the book that you didn't know you were talking to? I said, sure, right." <laughs> I, I can't be any more embarrassed. But that's true. If you'd made a mistake, it'd be, you know, yep. back page, front page of the paper. Erin, why is this woman on doing a footy yeah, show? She absolutely. doesn't know what she's talking about, right?
1: And you know what? I, I, I also look at that as well and don't see it so much just as a female kind of issue or a criticism it's you know I'm not a legend of the game and I haven't played the game and so I feel you look at you know the likes of Fatty and those those guys are absolute legends and you know even if the public didn't hold me to a higher standard I hold myself to a higher standard than than you know than I would expect of any of them anyway so I was happy to be put under that pressure and I was happy to deliver and perform under that pressure every time I can tell you another when I was at Wing TV in Canberra a story that might rival your Thinking Brad fitler was Joey Johns. I used to cover the women's basketball league, the WNBL in Canberra, the Canberra Capitals, who were immensely successful. I think it was my first or second year at Wynn tv and I was put into the sports reporter role. And every week I do kind of a wrap up of the WNBL and bring the ladder up on the screen and go through the points and who was leading. And for the entire season, I kid you not, I looked at the P column thinking it was points, but it was played. So every week I'd get up and say, well, They're all on even points again. I don't know how this is happening because the Capitals are winning and this team's losing. For a whole season, not one viewer wrote in and let me know, not one person at the network let me know. So how I'm still in sport and survived, I've got no no idea, but it's an example of why you should always do regional TV before you try and go national and get those mistakes out of the way. A whole year, a whole year. So there you go.
0: Can you recall the conversation you had at, at nine about taking over as host of the footy show?
1: Oh. I can, absolutely. And that was, that, uh, that was after it had already been in the papers. So I'd kind of, you know, heard rumors about it. It had been written about, I think, you know, we'd got back, I'd got back from holidays with Gerald. Um, and we'd landed at the airport and it was front page of the paper that, that, you know, that it was happening and not that I was hosting, but that the show was gone essentially. And, you know, I remember doing the big nine up front a couple of days after that and getting a call from my executive producer at the time, Glenn, and saying, you know, the show's gone. I don't know what they're doing with you, but, you know, the show's gone. So the kind of the first chat I actually had to anyone at the network about me hosting the show was probably a month or two months after it was on the front page of the paper. So I hadn't had any conversations or nothing prior to that. So yeah, it was um it, it was it was a pretty difficult time because, you know, I loved my colleagues immensely and and I thought that we were a great on air team, you know. Whether or not you liked the footy show, I thought that the four of us together were a really, really great team. So yeah, it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was very, very mixed emotions and and pretty tough at the time. Definitely.
0: How nervous when you did it the first time on your own?
1: Oh, look, fairly, fairly nervous, but uh, but also, I mean, it it kind of in my eyes, you know, it never felt it like the it wasn't like the footy show prior. You know, there was, there was kind of four of us in a studio, which yeah, it was, was a sports small show audience. with there you
0: with you in totally charge.
1: There was no entertainment, there was none of the the stuff that the footy show was before. So it it essentially just felt like a post match rap show where we just spoke about football. So it it was an entirely different show, you know, it wasn't the footy show at that stage. It was still called the footy show but it, it was, you know, a really different show. So I if it had been like the show before and the big crowds and the big thing I think it, it would have I would have been a lot more nervous. But it just didn't feel like the footy show. So it it was kind of and you know, and I'd done hosting on my own for, you know, for news, for for lots of different things prior to that. So, yeah, it was definitely, I was more nervous about how it would be received and the reaction of it and, and what people were going to to say and write than I was about, you know, my own performance on it.
0: The AFL footy shows disappeared as well. Do you think political correctness has killed off that sort of TV variety?
1: I think so, absolutely. And I think, you know, the likes of, you look at the Hey Hey it's Saturday eras and, and that kind of, Show where they do skits and where there's, you know, where it's live as well and unpredictable. And you've got, you know, it, I just don't think those kind of shows can survive in this day and age. And I think it was, it was, you know, probably a, a fairly long time coming. Well, look know, at uh, look at Sam
0: Sam Newman and Matthew Johns; those characters that they both Sam played himself, and Matty played a, a variety of people. Um, You know, they, they they've still been criticised now for wearing blackface and all of that sort of stuff. But the criticised criticisms come through a lens of what's acceptable today as absolutely. opposed to what it was like then.
1: I mean, there's things five years ago that, that we would have said on air that you just would never say today. You know, there's things two years ago that, that you'd say on air that today you, you just would say. Well, I don't know say, how anyone know, does stand up comedy these days. Uh, I don't think you can. I, I think that industry, is, you know, will probably die a slow a death as well. And look, look, there's absolutely elements of change that, that we needed and that, you know, make life better for everyone and that's a wonderful thing. But I also think there's there's sides of this that are just really sad and that are actually just, you know, for the sake of being politically correct where nobody is actually ever hurt or nobody is actually offended. You know, I, I think it's sad that there are there are things that we can no longer do, but there are also things that I think absolutely have to stop and, you know, I'm glad they have, but yeah, there's definitely an element that I think is is, you know, just gone too far.
0: You're an extremely talented person and you're so versatile um, and you probably hate being asked about uh, how much being a, a female plays into to your passion and, and your ambition. But um, is it harder to succeed in the media at the level you're at being a woman?
1: Uh, I haven't really been asked that way before. It's, um, I honestly don't think so. I, I look at it. As being a real advantage, I think if if you're good at what you do and you work hard, then you almost get more opportunities because there there were kind of less of me around. So I look at even that first hour that I sort of walked into Channel Nine and there was what ten other blokes in the sports department there. And a year after that, or a couple of years after that, I was given that first opportunity on the Thursday Night Footy Show to do a little segment with injuries and to talk about team changes and player movement and that kind of thing. And I remember sitting there looking around that department at the 10 other guys that were there that had been there much longer than me, were much more experienced than me, were probably better journalists at that stage than I was, were probably better on their talent at that stage than I was. But I was given this incredible opportunity because, yes, I was good and I was confident and there was something about me that they liked. But you know, the fact that I was a woman and, and they obviously wanted a woman in that space and, and I essentially came along and, and was able to fill that role, I got that opportunity, whereas they probably all deserved it more than I did. Now they've been there longer, worked harder and, and that kind of thing. So I don't see I, – I see it as probably something that, that has helped me immensely. I don't think it's ever been something that, that hasn't. You know, there's been challenges associated with being a woman that I think have been far greater and would not have existed had I been a male. But the opportunities that I've had, I've never felt disadvantaged at all. And, and quite the contrary, as I just explained, it's probably been an advantage for me in in many different ways.
0: Well, Nine does have a a great history of of promoting strong women. you only got to think about, you know, Tracy Grimshaw, Liz Hayes, Yana Vent. I mean, it is, uh, you know, people have often criticised TV networks for being too blokey, but boy, there's been some strong, talented, brilliant women on Australian television.
1: Oh, it's been incredible, hasn't it? And, and, you know, Yana Vent, she was uh, I was about to say a childhood hero of mine, then I thought, no, I can't <laughs> can't contradict myself and call her a hero. But she was someone I looked up to greatly, and, and the likes of you know Tracy is just phenomenal, and she is someone that you know I speak to quite often, and she has great advice. And you look at the Deb Knights, the Georgie Gardeners. There's you know a million different women on TV networks all over Australia that have done wonderful things, and yeah, I think Channel Nine has probably been as good as, if not better than anyone when it comes to to having women involved and women in strong roles. And even our weekend news at nine now, it's Georgie Gardner, myself and Belinda Russell, you know, three women who do sports, news and weather every Friday and Saturday night. And I think that's just a real testament to well, not only, you know, our hard work to get there, but also the network's, you know, attitude towards women, which has always been if you work hard and you're good, you'll get opportunities.
0: You've hosted a number of uh, MB Sydney women in business lunches, impressive women working together. You and I are both ambassadors for MB Sydney. But some of the women that turn up at those lunches are extraordinary.
1: Oh, isn't it, Jess? I remember getting up at one. In fact, I think you hosted it a couple of years ago and looking around the room and thinking, God, this is a bit embarrassing. I'm up here talking about you know trying to inspire a group of women that have all achieved 10 billion times more than I have. You look around the room and the calibre of people in the room is just extraordinary. and Not just people that have been so immensely successful in in business and in other areas of sport or or the arts, but people who just give back so much and do so much for other people and and contribute to charities and just generally really good, impressive people. It's it's amazing. It really is. It's just a great community to be a part of, and it's just such a privilege to be a part of it.
0: You also get the privilege of driving a Mercedes. Have you got a (laughs) favourite drive?
1: Oh, they're all just so amazing. Ah. Look, there was a green, a fluoro green sports car. See, I'm, I'm horrendous. I should know all the different, you know, numbers and letters. Surely that they didn't cars. give
0: you the, <laughs> no, the, the, AM, didn't. the AMG GT in green, did they?
1: No, they didn't. But I did see it and think, oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> but they're just – they're incredible cars and they're just – they're so safe and, and, you know, just comfortable and with a baby as well and, you know, a pram and that kind of thing. It's just having the space in the cars, the boot space and just all – all the extras, the seat warmers, the the voice recognition. Seat warmers, it, you it live in nothing Sydney? about them. No, it, mate, I do go to Canberra on the odd occasion and uh, plus it can course. be very cold sometimes. <laughs> and especially if I've been out at Penrith hosting the footy until midnight and it's minus two degrees and I'm wet and and awful, I get back in the car and the seat warmers, let me tell you, they are a life changer.
0: And when you're driving along, you can just say to the MBUX system, ring Major General Molan now.
1: <laughs> you know, he's in my phone as dad, right? Ring I don't dad call now. Him. It's not the bond trap. <laughs> I don't call him Major General. <laughs> but how good is it? I love that element of it. And even you can, like, it's, it, it's like you ask it different questions and it, you know, it's actually, if I'm feeling lonely, I can just have a chat. Do you, by the way, I always wonder, do you say please? Cause I know it's a robot, but I feel quite rude if I just say call mum always say, hi, Mercedes, please call mum. Do you speak politely to it? or
0: Very politely. I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> I was doing nights uh, on the GB network and we were doing a motoring segment called Car Advice. We had a guy on, was in a brand-new Mercedes, and he had the new system. So for a bit of fun, uh, while he was a talkback caller, I said, Mercedes, call his wife. Exactly <laughs> what happened? The phone started ringing. <laughs> You can play havoc with this, you know.
1: Oh, absolutely. You can. I can just – my mind is going to a million different places of where that could mm, go really badly could wrong. Could go very badly wrong.
0: Erin <laughs> Molan, ambassador for MB Sydney, thank you very, very much for joining us. Great to chat.
1: Absolute pleasure, Steve. That was a real – I really enjoyed that, funnily enough. Thank you so much for the chat.
0: Erin Molan, what a breath of fresh air. Our latest on the record joins Rita Panahi, Kerry ann Kennelly and Helen McCabe, powerful media women.